what are you doing up here? I asked her to be up here, actually. She's supposed to be up here. I'm just kidding. Hey, come on out here a little bit. I asked Genevieve Gentle if she would help me with just a little illustration this morning as we get started. Uh, She's going to help us visualize what we're going to be thinking about today as we think about blessed are those who mourn. And so I, I asked Genevieve if she would just do a couple of things. She doesn't have to talk. But I asked her if she would show us what a happy face looks like. That's pretty happy, right? That's good. Now, can you also show us, I know this is going to be hard, but a sad face. What does a sad face look like? Oh man, I'm tearing up right now just looking at that. That's bad, right? Okay, now here's the surprise face I wanted you to show us. She has not had any preparation for this, so give her some patience. Show us a happy, sad face. That was perfect. All right, go ahead and sit down. Everybody give her a hand. Wasn't that great? Now, we're back in our Happy Life series, and we're looking today at what I think to be one of the most paradoxical statements that we find in the Beatitudes. Now, you'll remember that each of these, there's a sense in which if you were to take it on its own, it looks a little bit strange on its head. And you might think to yourself, well, maybe it seems strange to us, but would it have seemed strange to Jesus' original audience? And I think that if, if you're wondering what it would have looked like for them to have heard that, I think they would have had Genevieve's face like, well, I don't even know how to have a happy face that's sad at the same time, right? Like, how do you do that? How do you work that out? Well, as I said last time, as we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and this introduction in the Beatitudes, uh, we're looking at this, and, and I'm following Jonathan Pennington's Uh, work, which I believe uh, understands rightly the Greek word for blessed that's repeated through each each beatitude. And I think it's actually better translated as happy or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is the same word that you see in the Greek version of Psalm 1, where it talks about the blessed man as one who is like a tree that is planted next to a stream of water, and he is fruitful. He is a flourishing tree. This is the picture of what it looks like to be the man, I believe, that Psalm 1 speaks of and that Jesus is speaking of in the Beatitudes. So as we are looking here, what really seems to be happening is Jesus is launching this sermon on the Sermon of the Mount with a picture, an introduction to a flourishing life. What does it look like to be in a good place here on earth? See, here I I think that it's fascinating that Jesus is responding and speaking to an audience of of Jews and and, and also Gentiles who have been affected by a Greco-Roman understanding of the world. And, And there were all kinds of philosophies of what the good life looked like. Some said a good life is one where you get as much pleasure as you can, while you can, and then you die. That's what the life, that's what life is. Others said, well, you know what, I think that there's actually something more internal that's not so dependent on external joy and pleasure. It's more about virtue. Are you living a virtuous life? Well, here we have Jesus coming as the king of the kingdom of heaven descending on earth. And as he begins to to speak, he is speaking with a, a theological vision of what it looks like to live the good life. 
You want to know if you're in a good place? Jesus says, I've got a message that didn't sort of spring up from earth and the philosophies of this world to heaven, but one that has come down to us from God. I am the king of this kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, I believe that that is what that little phrase, kingdom of heaven, throughout Matthew means. It is a unique expression. In fact, if you you look elsewhere, you won't find kingdom of heaven in other literature in the Bible. And I think the reason that Matthew is using this term kingdom of heaven for the kingdom of God, he uses it 32 times throughout his gospel. He is trying to give us a vision of how different God's kingdom is from the kingdoms of this world. He says it should make sense that it looks upside down from your vantage point. It is descending on you. And so as we are looking throughout the Beatitudes this morning, we are looking at what is seemingly the most paradoxical of them all. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. They are the ones who are flourishing. Now, if Jesus is truly ushered in the kingdom of heaven and we really possess it, I'm sure the Jew of Jesus' day had to be asking, why hasn't Jesus immediately reversed all of our fortunes? Why hasn't he issued that final judgment on the nations that he promised us in the prophets. Well, Matthew 13 is the center of this gospel. And and one of the things that, that becomes clear in Matthew 13 is that Jesus is showing that there is an already not yet nature to the nature of the kingdom that's come to us. In fact, even as we look at the Beatitudes, as we began last week, you'll remember that the first and the last are a present reality. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you'll notice that the middle six that we're going to be going through speak of future promises. Theirs will be, uh, they will be comforted. So we're looking here at an already not yet reality. Now, as we are going through this, you might ask yourself, well, why is there such an unfolding nature to the kingdom of God? Well, there are a lot of answers in the New Testament. We just recently saw a couple in 2 Peter 3, you remember, where Peter told his audience that the kingdom didn't just drop down all at once. One, because God's timing is not our timing. With him, uh, one day is is, is a thousand years to us. Uh, But second, uh, we are told by Peter that we need to understand God's patience as salvation. In other words, God is patient for us because if he did drop judgment on that day who could have stood apart from faith in Christ and his death on the cross we needed time to come to faith and put our faith in his plan but you might be asking yourself well how do I how do I actually apply these because there are a lot of different people that have different answers to how we apply these I'm just going to give you three uh, three dimensions of understanding these that I want you to be thinking through as you're thinking through these throughout Okay, Uh, I believe that there's a three-dimensional way that we understand the Beatitudes, each of them, uh, particularly the middle six. I I believe that there is a way in which they are actual. There is a sense in which they are aspirational. And there's also a sense in which they are anticipatory. Now, here's what I mean. There is a sense in which these actually speak of Christians after Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. Christians are poor in spirit. They are distinctively so. But there's also a sense in which they are aspirational. None of us are as poor in spirit as we ought to be. There are all of us who continue to see more in ourselves than what we ought and need to see more of our need for Jesus. But I believe there's also an anticipatorial nature to them. In other words, there's something that is already not yet that we are looking forward to. In other words, we are not 
ever going to receive the fullness of the comfort that we're going to talk about today until Christ returns. We might get momentary down payments, glimpses of what is to come, but we have not received the substance. So that's how we're going to be thinking about these throughout. If you take notes, here's our big idea. It's this. You ready to write this down? It's that Christ's kingdom does not mean that you will not mourn. But it does promise that God himself will comfort you. Christ's kingdom, it doesn't mean that you're not going to mourn, that you will not face difficult things, that you will not weep, that you will not grieve. But it does promise that God himself will comfort you. Now first, we see happy are those who mourn in this verse. The first half of verse 4. But what does Jesus mean by blessed or happy and flourishing are those who mourn? Well, this word for mourn, it, it really, the word behind it means in the English a lot like what it sounds like. It's, it's a sense of sorrow or grief that is inward that often goes outward with expressions of, of tears. Uh, clearly, Jesus expects this statement to arrest the attention of his Jewish and Gentile audience. He, he wants to get their, their attention on the front end. Now, the first part, happier the sad, makes no sense without the second part, for they shall be comforted. But before we get to the comfort, we need to think about some observations about mourning here. I've got four. Here's the first. First here again, Jesus announces that he is fulfilling Isaiah 61's prophecy. In other words, Jesus is not just uh, bringing in something that's brand new. He's actually pointing to the fact that he is the fulfillment to what the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 promised would come about. It was there that he said that there would be a spirit-anointed conqueror anointed to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. See, Isaiah says that he would give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Jesus signals the reversal of the fortunes of those who mourn in Zion and over Zion. And because of Zion's sin, they are so many, their sins. See, the kingdom has arrived with King Jesus, but the center of the party is going to be a cross and not a cake. Now, hear me, there is, I believe, going to be cake at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But before we get to the cake, we are told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That, that image of a cross is not meant to be a picture of a comfy life. The, the center of Christianity, it's not a lazy boy. It is an instrument of death, the death that actually brought us forgiveness with God, peace with God. See, the kingdom is here, just not fully, and your joy, it will be mixed with mourning if you are truly in a good place. If you're in a good place, you will mourn. There will be a unique kind of otherworldly mourning that will come into your soul if you have been united by faith with Christ, with God's King. Now, I'm pretty sure that there will be cake at that marriage feast of the Lamb, but Jesus tells his followers, you and me, that we need to take up our cross and follow him. And hear me, that is the flourishing life according to God's King. Now, as we look at this, we need to recognize that there's a second observation important here in the Scriptures, and that is that not all mourning is happy. 
Now that might sound obvious at first blush. Not all mourning is happy. And not every mourning comes with a promised comfort as a response to that morning. This isn't an unqualified promise. In other words, you'll notice that Jesus is speaking in the context of a, a list of beatitudes in his gospel, which takes place in the Bible as a whole. And we need to understand how this fits into the grand scheme of what Jesus Christ is doing. See, the Bible is replete with cautions against worldly mornings that lead to death and not to life. Not every path of mourning leads to the kind of promises that Jesus is speaking of. I mean, just consider some of the different types of worldly mournings in the Bible. Thomas Watson has his, these are mine. See, each of these, these forms of mourning that we see throughout the Bible that I'm about to talk about, they almost look repentant. It's like they're, they're just right there at the finish line, but they don't quite punch through. And so we want to look at each of these to make sure we understand what a, a godly biblical type morning looks like. Uh, one, mopey morning is not true morning. Now here's what I mean. Jesus warns of this. If you remember in Matthew 6, 16, he's talking about that, that person who disfigures their face to look gloomy during fast to be seen by others. There's an, there's, an, there's an outward expression of sorrow and mourning. But what Jesus says is, what, what's wrong here is, what? The audience is not God. The audience is those who are looking on him or her. And what they want is to have a certain sort of perspective that is not really authentic to who they are. It's hypocrisy. See, Jesus is not asking for his people, catch me, to pretend to be happy when they mourn on the one hand, right? That, that's not what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, just like sing the happy song with the world and you'll be fine. And on the other hand, he's not telling us to pretend to be mopey and mourning when in our heart there's really nothing about the gospel that has come in and convicted us and caused us to weep over our sin. See, moping externally for attention without a heart that mourns is hypocritical. But not only that, recall that the scripture also speaks to another kind of mourning, a blame-shifting kind of mourning. You remember in 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul has sinned against God. And he's been caught dead to rights. And man, it looks, it looks really good as it, it takes off because he mourned he outwardly for his sins. He, trans, he, he confessed his transgressions. And then he went on to explain himself. I feared the people. Boy, doesn't that sound subtle but so familiar. Genesis 3. It is that woman that you gave me. Which means it's really your fault and her fault and then my fault. But if it wasn't for you guys, it never would have happened. Maybe you've heard this in other forms. You know, the, the devil made me do it. My special circumstances contributed to this unique situation. If that did not happen, I would never have sinned. I was set up. Maybe you blame other stuff than people. 
tangible things. You know, it's a unique financial situation. I had too much gluten to eat. It just kind of affects me. And all kinds of things we point to. We blame shift. But not only that, we're warned in the scriptures of a lustful mourning. Uh, you'll remember Amon in 2 Samuel 3, that son of David, horrible dude. He actually has this strong desire for his daughter. And, and we're told in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel that he looked haggard day after day because he lusted after his sister and eventually violated her. Now, I, I think we just all need to take note that there is a tendency, I believe, in all of our hearts to long to have someone else, to have companionship, and that thing that we mourn over, and it could be a good thing that we desire, if unchecked, it could turn to something that is not healthy. And so we need to constantly, if you're, if you're a single guy or a single girl, we need to constantly sort of take note of that. If we are married, we need to take note of that. We need to be aware that Good mornings can sometimes turn into lustful desire. See, the good desire for companionship and intimacy, that is not a bad thing. God created us for community. But it can, if unchecked, turn into a, a God that causes us to literally be willing to sacrifice our own relationship with the Lord, the blood of others, to find the joy and the desire that companionship promises. That is treating a relationship as like a God. Keep the love and trust of God and the desire to make others fruitful ever before your eyes. That's a great way to help protect yourself against lustful thoughts. Uh, a is make Jesus big in your life. Meditate on his word. Pray. B would be think about your responsibility to others, not to use them for what you get out, but how to make them more of a flourishing human in the economy that God has created until Jesus returns. But not only that, we find other kinds of bad mourning. What about greedy mourning like King Ahab, who had many vineyards in 1 Kings 21? You remember this guy? Had all the vineyards, this king. I mean, he was rich and had resources. But there was one, one resource that he wanted, one vineyard that he desired that he just couldn't get his fixation off of. It was poor Naboth's vineyard. A vineyard he received as, as part of the promises of God. He wasn't allowed to give it away. And yet ah Ahab, he wanted him to sin against God and give him this vineyard. He refused to. He did the godly thing. And so Ahab's wife Jezebel killed Naboth and took the vineyard. And what did Ahab do? He enjoyed its grapes. See, he mourned over something that was not his. It's not a good kind of mourning. It's not a kind of life-giving mourning. Hosea 7.14 was actually lamenting Israel as a whole. And in that, that image, you'll remember that in, Isaiah, I mean in Hosea 7.14, that God is looking at them and they are mourning, but what they are mourning, it's not a mourning that comes from the heart, he says. It's not a good godly kind of mourning. It's not a, a, a kind of mourning that mourns over their sin, but instead they were wailing on their beds at night, consuming their tears because they wanted more wine and grain. Now they're crying out to God. I mean, they're praying. It looks like a spiritual thing. Like they really are mourning in the kind of way that ought to bring hope. And yet what God says is, man, your heart, it's, it's not in the right place. Do you lament not having what others do? Do we think the good life is insulating ourselves with earthly comforts 
so that we do not have to mourn? The world says that. If you insulate yourself from all hardship, then you're in a good place. And what the scriptures say is, is if you are rich and wealthy, like you are actually in a dangerous place, not a wrong place, but in a seductive place that you need to be careful, more diligent about the care of your soul. What about hopeless mourning? I mean, let's not forget Judas in Matthew 27. He looks so close to the kind of mourning that leads to repentance. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, but then he regretted what he did. He confessed his sin very specifically. He gave the money back, trying to give retribution for what he had done. At this point, he almost looks like Zacchaeus. But then he went and killed himself. I'm not here like trying to give an ethic for suicide and whether or not there's hope in that. I believe there is. That's not what we're talking about. But he regretted his sin, Judas did, and never turned in faith to Christ is the only hope for the hopeless. And what about the self-pitying mourning? Man, this is, this is my favorite. I love this one. We see it very early on in the scriptures when God punished Cain for killing Abel in Genesis 4. I would say that's a pretty bad sin. What about you? You kill your brother, your sister? Like, that's a bad thing. That, that's tough. The person that you should be most responsible for. The person you should be a keeper of. And Cain's response, his first response that we have from God, I mean from Cain to God is, oh, when he receives his judgment, oh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Did you catch that? Cain is more concerned about the consequence of his sin than his murder of his brother or his sin against God. Do you see this? He, he, he is been caught in his sin, and his response is not repentance, but it is one of self-pity. Cain could not see the mercy of God displayed to him in not killing him on the spot. That would have been lex talionis. That would have been an eye for an eye. A life for a life would have been just, but God showed mercy. See, Cain didn't mourn his sin and rejoice in God's mercy. He mourned the consequence of his sin, how it was going to affect his life. And God's consequence to Cain was just in a world run by vengeance. Catch this. Self-pity and vengeance often party together. They hang out in the same spas. They go to the same clubs. And I think the fact that Genesis 4 ends saying if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77, highlights man's vengeance and God's mercy towards the undeserving. See, I recently heard a retired pastor who was talking uh, about uh, this nature of self-pity, and he says, I think self-pity is the root of so much of my sin. Self-pity can manifest as a kind of sadness or mourning that this life hasn't turned out the way that it should, or I haven't really gotten a fair shake. Has anybody felt that way before? Have you ever found yourself like mourning and maybe in the wee hours of the morning, getting out of bed a little bit later as you're thinking about what a bad shake you've gotten. And you're talking to God about it. And he's sitting there going, you sinned, I gave my son for you. 
I saved you from like my wrath, from hell. I called you a son, and you're, you're talking about fear. See, that kind of worldly mourning misunderstands God's profound mercy to sinners. And I'm not saying that this life isn't full of lament and mourning, but it is so full of grace and mercy. I once was talking to a, a man just showing how, how interesting our hearts can be. And this man was, was such an encouragement to see the way that God's grace, the Holy Spirit, was at work in his marriage. He, he had a spouse, and uh, she hadn't disclosed. They got married when they were non-Christian. She hadn't disclosed like the fullness of um, her sin and her past life. And then after years of, of being Christians, coming to Christ, sitting for a season under gospel preaching, she confessed these things to him, and he found that it was just really hard for him to take. And, and he really worked through it a lot. He was praying through it. He was uh, working with her, seeking counsel through it. And, and I still remember one time we were meeting and he said, I need to confess something to you about why I've been so sad through all of this. I'm thinking, well, I mean, I think it's obvious. It's okay. He says, no, you, you know that I've discovered something. And part of what like, I'm wrestling with at the end of the day is there's a part of me that regrets that, that I didn't send it up like she did before I came to Christ. And then as, as tears were coming down his face, he said, and that's how sinful I am. See, he found his heart mourning, not over his wife or his God, but over not getting to sin more. But God's Holy Spirit revealed this to him, and with tears he confessed that it was his wife's sins that awakened to him to his own heart's sinfulness. And only the Lord can do something like that. And did you catch what he did? He repented of mourning over the wrong things. He, he said, I was sad for all the wrong reasons. And he was happier because of it. See, you're not a happy mourner if you're mourning over sinful desires. If you're mourning over the things that, that God should have given you or he's given others and he didn't give you, or if you're mourning over God's timing not being your timing, or, or if you're mourning over the fact that you know, uh, you know I, I really should have this spouse right now, but I don't, so God has not made good on his deal, and so I will, I'm, I'm leaving God, I'm leaving others. It's not a godly kind of mourning. It's not a mourning that leads to rejoicing and joy and eternal life. So you're not a happy mourner if you're mourning over sinful desires. There are no new mourning mercies that are promised to those who are caught up in their worldly mournings, lest they turn to Christ. But don't miss this. Our mournings really reveal something about us, don't they? If we're honest. When we mourn, and we try to get to the heart of what it is that we're mourning about, usually at the end of that breadcrumb trail, what we find is what we value and what we love. And sometimes what really bugs us, and we want to stop dead in our, our, our tracks before we get to the end of the trail, is what we'll find at the end of it when it's not God, when it's not His glory, when it's not His Son Christ, when it's not being led by the Holy Spirit. See, our mornings reveal what we value most, and if we do not mourn our sin, it reveals that we don't really love Jesus most. And if we don't mourn our sin, we'll mourn anything and love anything. And that's not a way to live a life that promises eternal life. But I think there really is another question that we should be asking as we think about godly mourning. And that is this. Third, what does Jesus mourn about? You know, Jesus came and Jesus mourned. We celebrate the coming of a king, a king who mourned. 
And here's what's fascinating. In Jesus' day, one of the philosophies that was going around was that of the Stoics. And they understood emotion, emotion like mourning, to be a weakness. And so here comes Jesus, the king of God's kingdom in heaven. And he is known as the man of sorrows. The fact is, you look at the prophet Isaiah, he spoke of this great conquering king who would come, but he also, in the middle of his book, speaks of one who would come as a suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53.3, he described this suffering servant, saying he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, the eternal Son of God, who enjoyed eternal joy at the right hand of the Father, took on flesh as the man of sorrows. Man, that is quite the exchange. Trading in eternal joy to come and take on the sorrows of humanity. You know, many have noted that if you look at Jesus and his life throughout the scriptures, we see a lot about the, the emotional life of Jesus and uh, the kinds of emotions that he displays. He shows himself to be a man who was angry at points, a, a man who mourned, uh, but we don't ever see Jesus laughing. I don't think that that means that Jesus does not come to usher in a fullness of joy when he returns. But his life was not noted as a life of ease and laughing. I don't imagine Jesus watching a lot of sitcoms or going to a lot of comedy shows. See, many have noticed that Jesus never laughed during his earthly ministry. He was a a Savior who mourned. But what was it that he mourned over? We know that Jesus never mourned over his sin. He did not sin. He could not sin. But he wasn't just sinless. He was incapable of sinning. But Jesus did mourn. We find a couple of examples. Uh, Jesus, in John eleven thirty five, 35, we were told that Jesus wept. If you're looking for a, a good place to start memorizing Scripture, I would commend John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. That's one verse in the hopper. But what was it that he was weeping over? It was over the, the death of his friend Lazarus. It was right before he raised him from the dead. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, and yet he still wept over his death. Why? Because he saw the effects of sin on this broken world that leads to death. He lamented that. He mourned over that. But not only that, we find that Jesus weep again in Luke 19. And he is weeping over Jerusalem. And the reason he's weeping over them is he anticipated their future destruction because he says, they did not see the way to peace with God. It was hidden from their eyes. He's weeping over their future. In fact, one author understands that just as Isaiah 61 sees mourning over Zion, refusing to repent and believe, this beatitude specifically calls for mourning to be the condition of being a part of the true Zion that is to come. I think this means, hear me, that it's okay to mourn the effects of living in a broken world like sickness and death. It it is okay for you to mourn, even though Paul tells us to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, there is still a place to rejoice and to mourn at the same time. I love this beatitude because it says it's okay not to be okay. We don't want to stay that way. But Jesus didn't come for the thriving according to this world's standards. 
We are called to fight for joy, not to pretend, not to mourn and grieve loss. Uh, I was recently just talking to a sister this last uh, month who said that she's still hurting over the loss of a friend. What a beautiful thing that Jesus doesn't reject those who struggle to get out of bed in the morning due to sadness. But catch this, there is one way that we mourn that Jesus does not. Jesus never mourned his sin. But we should. See, Jesus' mission really was to rescue mournful rebels destined for God's just wrath and to give them eternal joy in its place. Now, you you can see this in Jesus' Beatitudes in Luke 6.21. That's where they kind of mirror uh, the Beatitudes that we find in Matthew. But Luke's, I think, are on a different occasion, and they're they're geared in a different direction. But there, we we can get some context. Luke says in Luke 6.21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So there's, there's coming a day where we're going to laugh a lot. I'm not advocating holy laughter. If you don't know what it, that is, good. Um, but he follows this with a woe in Luke 6.25, where he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. There's a reversal. Do you see it that's coming? Those who think they're in a good place are not. Those who are in a mournful place will have their, their fortunes restored. There'll be a great reversal for them. And they shall laugh. Reminds me a little bit of of Sarah who mourned not being able to have a child and then found out she had a child. And and she was what? At first laughing sarcastically, but then overjoyed with what God had done. Only God could do that. But don't miss this. Jesus did not come for the happy people who did not need him, but those who mourned their sins and knew their need of deliverance. There's only one good place. Only one good place. And that's a, a person not a GPS coordinate. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is our good place. He's the good king. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are in a flourishing place. He is the spring of living water that causes us to flourish and be fruitful in life. Move away from Jesus, we see a withering of our lives moving closer to Christ. We see more flourishing and life that springs up. What a beautiful promise. Jesus is not with the loud and proud who have plenty and comfort and no worry of sin. He is with those who mourn their brokenness and sin. But notice also, fourth, when we're thinking about mourning, we need to know that mourning sin, which is a good thing to mourn, leads to repentance. Chrysostom said this. He said, they are not blessed who mourn for the dead, but those who mourn for sin. Now, I disagree with John Chrysostom. I believe that this verse does speak to those who mourn death and sickness and those kinds of things, but only in in the sense that they must first understand that this brokenness finds its nexus in our sin against a holy and righteous God. See, those who mourn for sin will also receive comfort in death, but they must mourn their sins. I, I think that's ground zero. The rest is true generally, but not if we don't mourn our sin. Now, here's three things to know about gospel concerning Mourning. Here's gospel-centered mourning. Three things that we need to to know. First, God's grace leads to mourning sin. It is the grace of God in our lives that we mourn our sin. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to do this. We even see this in the Old Testament, Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 says, mourning is a gospel grace. Here's how he says it. I will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. You're like, oh, that's great. 
And then he says, and they shall mourn. You might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought it was spirit of grace, we're in a good place. Like Genevieve, I'm happy. But here it says that grace lands and mourning breaks out because we understand our sin before a holy and righteous God. I mean, isn't that what we see in Isaiah 6? Isaiah comes before the Lord and he's like, finally you showed up, I'm in a good place. No, he says, I just realized how sinful I am. I'm in need of atonement, atonement that only you can provide. So we should pray that God would reveal our sin to us and help us to rightly mourn it. Not mourn it to the the point of just confessing it. Not just mourn it to the the point where we actually bring retribution for what we've done. Not mourning to the place where we actually are saying that I am a sinner in desperate need of salvation, but to the point where we actually repent and turn from the way we are living, hoping in the God who helps the hopeless. That's what repentance looks like. Second, we need to know this about gospel-centered mourning. Jesus' brother James says we should mourn our sin. He he says that we ought to do it. Now, James is interesting. He's Jesus' brother. And if you read through his book, it's interesting how connected it is to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And James, he seems to reflect a lot about his teaching there. And in 4.9, James 4.9, he aims at mourning sin. He says, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And in the context of calling people to flee their sins, he says this, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy to gloom. Now here's here's the thing that we, I, I want just to be aware of this morning. If we become so calloused, so hardened in our hearts towards our sin against God and others, that we do not mourn it, then I believe we have begun to lose sight of the gospel. When, when we begin to think that, you know, sin, it's like grace covers it all, we're fine, it's not a big deal. Obedience, it's a, it's a nice sort of trophy to add to the mantle, but the mantle of Christianity is still there without the trophy. That's not the vision that we see in the New Testament of true Christianity. See, 1 John 1.9 calls us to deny, not to deny that we have sinned or to dismiss it or to blame others or to act like we understand it outwardly without a contrite heart. But instead, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He, being God, is faithful and just both to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So when we sense that we have sinned, we come to God, we confess it, we turn from it, and we look to Christ. Third, third thing about gospel-centered mourning. Paul says we should mourn the sins of others as well. Some of you, if you're like me, you're like, man, I just don't even mourn my own sins as I ought to. But boy, the scriptures seem to point to the fact that we ought to be mournful even over the sins of others. Speaking to the Corinthian church about not disciplining a guy who was sleeping with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5 2. If you haven't heard about that, you can read it later today, 1 Corinthians 5. A lot of crazy stuff happening there. But he says to this church that has not responded to this sin, Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? To mourn that there's sin in your midst that hasn't been dealt with. Should your heart not be broken? that you've just gone on living like nothing 
of any concern or matter or consequence has happened without any kind of change in your lives together as a church. Paul says we should mourn the sins of others. But fourth, again, godly mourning leads to repentance. When we understand our poverty of spirit before God, He will next understand our great mournful sin debt before Him. We will understand that. And that is what we deserve. We deserve not a party, but a funeral. That's why we mourn and grieve our sin in such a way that it leads to repentance. It turns us away from the death that we were on our way to, to life, to flourishing. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11. It's there that he says godly grief, it produces repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief does that. See, mourning over our sin leads to repentance, which leads to the joy of salvation. We can confess our sins knowing that he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's kingdom is made up of people who flourish as they mourn and they await the return of Christ. Here's the promise, though. Here's the promise. Because God himself will comfort us now and forever. We are those who are happy and flourishing in our mourning because... God himself will comfort us. If you do not read that part, the first part makes no sense. Happy are the sad. A little confused. Because God himself will comfort you. Now that makes all the difference. So here's what I want to do as, as we end. And this is by far the shorter section. I want to answer three quick questions as we end. Who comforts us? How do they comfort us? When do we get comforted? First, who comforts us? When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, I take that for, for they shall be comforted, to mean because. In other words, this is the ground of knowing that you are flourishing as a mourner and in a good place. It is because you are promised that you will be comforted. But comforted by who? Well, I take this to actually be what they call a divine passive. In other words, the, the one who is acting here, his name is not mentioned, but it is everywhere implied. It is God who will bring you comfort, God himself. And what we need, what we need is comfort that only our triune God can provide. And boy, do we see his character as one that brings comfort to his people throughout. You remember in Isaiah 41, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Even in your sin, even in your brokenness, I want comfort for you. I, I don't want pain and suffering. I want you to experience joy. See, what we need is what only God can provide. Now, the question is, how are we comforted though? Well, <clears throat> I believe the text gives us a little window into this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. If you got your Bible, you might want to go ahead and look there. I just want to make a few observations about how we are comforted. Now, you'll remember that in 1 Corinthians, Paul spent a good deal of time laying some corrective wood on a church that had all kinds of ways that they were divided. They should be united, but they're divided. And he corrects them throughout, though he displays much love for them. But he opened 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4 saying this, Blessed, now this is a different word than what we find in the Beatitudes, a different kind of word for blessed. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Now, let me just lay out three things. You can meditate on these later that we see here. Encouragements about how we are comforted. One, God is the Father of all comfort. Paul says that explicitly. Now, let me ask you this. <clears throat> is there comfort that comes any, from anywhere else ultimately than God? You're like, he sometimes asks trick questions. I don't know. No. There is nowhere else to go for comfort than to God. He is the God of all comfort. There are some fake comforts, sins that promise all kinds of comfort that never make good on what they promise. But only God himself gives you comfort. Now, here's, I think, just one application of this. That means that if you are finding yourself in a place of discomfort, life has gotten hard, you sense the brokenness acutely, that means that prayers need to go up in volume, not down. Because where else do you have to go? I mean, so many of us, we, we lose so much, and it's almost like the more we lose, the less willing we are to go the one place we need to go, which is God in prayer. And it should be the opposite. God is the father of all comfort. Second, notice that God comforts us in our afflictions. God does not necessarily remove the discomfort. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, pray to the God of all comfort. And magically, like Philip in Acts 8, you will be displaced and pop in a new area that's not hard, doesn't have discomfort at all. That's not what he says. God doesn't necessarily remove the discomfort. He might. But Christianity means taking up our cross and following Jesus. He he will meet us through his word, giving us a heavenly rationale for taking comfort even in our sufferings. That's one way that he comforts us. Think about this. As you read through the scriptures, here's some of that heavenly rationale that you'll find everywhere. You can go find this later. He knows that he's killing sin in our lives through our discomfort. Sanctification's happening. The scriptures tell us that we know that our sufferings are small in weight in comparison to the glory that awaits us. We know that these afflictions are momentary, these things that cause us to mourn compared to the eternal joy that awaits. Do you you see that? There's a, a, a biblical rationale and logic that helps you to see reality as God sees it. See, that's heavenly logic that turns to fire under affliction. We think more clearly. There also seems to be a supernatural communion between God and his people as they seek to faithfully mourn. I believe that God gives and imparts through his spirit a kind of comfort to his children who are suffering that others know not. Third, God brings us comfort through those who have experienced his comfort. Did you see that? Paul seems to think that at least one reason that he had to go through really difficult things, and oh, did he go through difficult things. But he says one reason. I'm sure there are many But one is so that I experience the comfort of God so that I could then be used by God to comfort you. Do you see that? That is true of, I believe, every Christian. God does not waste suffering. He does not waste his experience of giving you comfort. He is actually calling you into a ministry of comforting others. So you need a local church of people covenanting with you. You need to pursue knowing and being known 
And I'm not talking about like Facebook known, like here's a a highlight reel of my life. And by the way, we always smile and we never frown. See, God brings comfort in real time to his people through his people. Now, if you don't have a church, let me just encourage you. August 4th, we have a membership class. Great time to come and learn about our church, become a member of our church, or join another church. But you need to be a part of a church who's holding you accountable to living out your relationship with Christ so that you can be comforted and comfort others, amongst other things. And when you do so, realize that you need the spiritual comfort that God brings through others encouraging you in the Word. But God also calls you to comfort others. The same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that we went through recently about God's calling to every member for other members. Remember? He said you need to comfort those who are discouraged. And that is the ministry that is given to the church broadly. Now, last question. Who are, who are we comforted? <clears throat> I mean, when are we comforted? Another text. You can turn here if you want to. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17. When are we comforted? See, Jesus promises that God himself is going to to comfort us, but you might be thinking when. Now, here's the way my mind works. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The cross has not yet happened yet, but Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, but we're hearing this on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. So, was this promise for that time? Or was that for today, when we are living as we await the return of Jesus? Or is this comfort solely something that's going to come when Jesus returns? I would say yes. <clears throat> Look with me. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17. This is what Paul writes. To a young fledgling church. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them. Notice that the comfort comes in, in the past. Did you see that? He, he comforted us with an eternal comfort. Jesus Christ and God our Father loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Eternal, like, that's positive and negative, right? That comes through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He, he, he came at the cross, and it was at that point that he opened up for us a comfort that comes from heaven. Now, if you're a non-Christian here, let me just encourage you. I want you to know that the Bible says that outside of believing in and living for Christ, it is an uncomfortable world. It's uncomfortable for Christians. It's uncomfortable for non-Christians. Christians have this whole other area of discomfort because we know we were made for another home that we're waiting for. But every person that lives in this world experiences the brokenness of it. The Christian, we understand, though, that that brokenness is because of our sin against God. And that apart from God, the discomfort that we find here, even the greatest discomfort, is only a prelude to the discomfort that's coming for those who do not repent of living for this world and turn to Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done that, please do not leave today without putting your faith in Jesus. Talk to me, another Christian here. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. We want you to experience the joy that awaits us and the comfort that's available to us, not just at the last of days, but today. Now, I want to say that that comfort that comes through faith in the cross, that past, past activity, there's also a comfort, I believe, that is offered and available to us presently. See, did you, did you notice that he prays that Jesus Christ might comfort their hearts and establish them? He, he, he wants, it seems to say that they're in process in some sense. I mean, this really isn't with respect to time. He simply asks that it is done in this life. See, sometimes God changes our circumstances in the present, and he, he brings us comfort. We pray for the sick, and sometimes they are healed. 
We, we pray for a better job, and sometimes God blows our minds and gives us a, a, a better job. Sometimes He saves our marriages in a way that we give testimony to. But God doesn't always change our circumstances. And God's actually more concerned about our hearts, according to the Scriptures, than our circumstances. It's about the way that we view the reality that we live in rather than altering the reality that we live in. The altering is coming. But how are we living in the world that we live in? God wants to change our hearts. See, this comfort, this present comfort that, that we have, it also is tied to what we mourn and what we love. If we really understand who God is, we mourn what He mourns and we love what He loves. And loving what He loves and loving Him causes us to mourn those things that He hates. But this comfort also, this present comfort also points to the future. Because we have, again, eternal comfort. See, this is the already not yet ultimate last day reality that we long for when the kingdom of heaven comes fully to earth, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are all kinds of pictures of throughout the scripture, but I love what Revelation 21 envisions this. He, he, there we find John saying, this day when Jesus comes back is going to be a happy day. It's going to be like a wedding between Christ and his people. Ever been at a good wedding? I hope, it, I hope yours was a good wedding if you were married. And I hope there was, was dancing and joy and good cake and good food. It's a beautiful day, right? A celebration. That's what the last day is going to be like. But catch this, there's no crying. In Revelation 21.4, it says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a new day. A new day that we await. A new day of comfort and joy that is coming. That's why Paul frees us to grieve with those who grieve. But he, he says, but we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. We have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. We have hope. We have hope that Jesus is coming back, that he's going to set things right, that he's going to restore what's lost, that he's going to wipe away our tears, past, present, and future. Already thought of them, already has them in a bottle. They are promises. He's going to restore what has been lost. This is what we have in Christ. See, Christ's kingdom doesn't mean that you're not going to mourn, but it does promise that God himself is going to comfort you. Let's pray. Well, this morning we come before you praising you that you are our heavenly God of comfort, that you are a God who stoops to sinners who have rebelled against you, and you give us words of hope and promise. Father, we praise you that we have a future to look forward to, trusting that you are going to set things right. Father, we pray that until that day comes, you would help us to be a people who mourn the right things, who mourn our sin, who mourn the sins of others, who look to you and only you for hope that only you can provide. Lord, help us to be a people of faith. It's in your name we do pray. Amen.